0: Welcome to Talking Thomism, the official podcast of the Center for Thomistic Studies at the University of St. Thomas, Houston. If you enjoy this talk and want to hear other talks like it, don't forget to subscribe. Thank you, Brian. Uh, I Actually, I'm very, very happy to be here. I, uh, it's been a long time. Um, I didn't really imagine myself giving a colloquium at University of St. Thomas uh, and so to have the opportunity is really rather wonderful. I enjoyed my days here as a graduate student immensely and have lots of fond memories so and it's good to see some very familiar faces again too so thank you very much I appreciate it. Uh, this article is a bit jumping in the middle of things. I had recently published an article uh, on the subject of energy and right as that was coming out I learned uh, that David Oderberg, who is uh, Aristotelian, scholastic uh, somewhat analytically trained had written uh, a paper uh, entitled his prime matter energy and so I read that and I've been developing kind of a reply to it so that accounts for this sort of being and in, jumping into the middle of things uh, there are some sections of the paper I'm going to skip or briefly summarize because I want to leave plenty of time for questions and answers. Uh, I'm hoping that in most cases, these are sections uh, in areas that are, are familiar to this, to this audience. Okay? So, but we can always talk about any of that in the Q&A if uh, you would like to. So to begin. Uh, in his article, Is Prime Matter Energy? David Oderberg, and this is quote one, tests the hypothesis that prime matter that the prime matter of classical Aristotelian scholastic metaphysics is numerically identical to energy. By this he means to ask, is the classical Aristotelian metaphysical concept of prime matter no more and no less than what scientists, physicists for the most part, understand to be energy? End quote. Oderberg maintains that the question requires more work and currently cannot be answered with a simple yes or no. Nevertheless, he argues that the hypothesis that prime matter is energy, quote, is at worst, prima facie, plausible, and at best, quite strong. Oderberg ends his paper saying, quote, so my answer to the question, is prime matter the same as energy, is not yes or no, but why not?" End quote. I shall argue that Oderberg's hypothesis is not plausible. The different forms of energy are accidents. Hence, identifying energy with prime matter is a category mistake. However, more fundamentally, Oderberg, I maintain, has mistaken an abstraction of what is common to all the different forms of energy for an underlying principle that persists throughout energy transformations. Once this initial mistake about energy is recognized, I do not see any warrant for hypothesizing that prime matter is energy. After some important introductory remarks, Oderberg outlines what prime matter means in classical Aristotelian scholastic metaphysics, and then gives the strongest argument for it, the argument (coughs) from substantial change for prime matter is necessary for explaining real substantial change or even the real possibility for such changes. He then describes what is known about the scientific notion of energy, explaining in general what it is and what it is not, what its role is and its application in some key fields. Oderberg then tests the hypothesis that prime matter is energy by making a profile comparison which compares the ontological profile of that to which one concept refers with that to which the other concept refers to see how well they match. He then considers arguments for and against a match between energy and prime matter. According to Oderberg, matches on key features provide a strong reason for regarding the two concepts as referring to one (laughs) and the same being or entity. I agree with what Oderberg means by prime matter. Uh, His view, though it's not by any means universal because people think all different things about prime matter, but his view is standard and pretty traditional. Uh, What he does is he quotes (coughs) three equivalent descriptions of prime matter from Bernard Buhler's 1956 Dictionary of Scholastic Philosophy, and that's quote two in your handout, and I've just listed those. And then he provides his own summary statement of, uh, of them, and that's uh, quote three in your handout. I'm going to pass over this, since I don't have any real significant disagreement with him on that, but we can always talk about that if anybody uh, would like to. Oderberg then takes up the question, what is energy? He observes that etymologically, energy comes from Aristotle's Energiaeum but rather oddly goes on to say that, quote, four, whereas Aristotle means actuality in his technical sense, our modern energy seems to denote the opposite half into which he thought all of reality was exhaustively divided, the correlative phenomena of potentiality, end quote. Oderberg's claim is odd, because in the sciences, in public and energy policy, in technology, and in ordinary speech, words such as energy, energetic, or high energy are commonly used to mean activity, or something active, or having an active capacity or potency. And using the term potential energy, we may sometimes refer to a passive potency, but this would imply a potency to energy that something has a passive potency to act or activity. I shall not develop this line of argument against Odeberg's conception of energy though I do wish to note it. law of conservation of energy is the key to Odeberg's conception of energy and his hypothesis that energy is prime matter. Energy comes in many different forms but in all changes in energy forms of energy come and go or may increase and decrease, but the total quantity of energy always remains the same. Oderberg comments, and this is quote five conversion from one form to the other is precisely that for which prime matter is the substratum, at least when the forms are substantial and not merely accidental. Oderberg quotes from a contemporary physics text that tells us. Energy is a quantity that can be converted from one form to another but cannot be created or destroyed. Similarly, just as the total quantity of energy cannot be created or destroyed, so too prime matter persists throughout substantial changes and cannot be generated or corrupted. Further, according to Oderberg, this is quote 7, neither prime matter nor energy exists in a free, that is formless state. Unquote. Just as prime matter does not exist simply of itself, independently of the things it constitutes, but only actually exists as formed, so too there is no such thing as pure energy that exists by itself and not as a specific form of energy. Finally, according to Oderberg, we do not know what energy is, and we do not know what prime matter is. And this is quote eight, which I'm going to skip. Energy is often defined as the capacity for work. However, not only is that not a strict definition, but the use of the word capacity is, quote, music to the ears of an Aristotelian scholastic philosopher. Since prime matter is indeed a capacity, it is pure, undetermined capacity, end quote. After briefly reviewing the historical discovery of the many different forms of energy and of energy conservation, Oderberg concludes, and this is a somewhat long quote, this is number nine, yet although the various forms of energy belong to material substances and derivatively to systems of material substances, they are all forms of a single underlying quantity of something or other. Strictly indefinable, yet with a clear role in physical systems. It was the development and exploration of manifold new mechanisms for the transfer or transmission of heat, light, motion, force, and so on that required scientists to postulate an underlying transformable quantity enabling the different mechanisms to perform work or to be worked upon, manifest various qualities, grow, shrink, and so on, in the notion of energy as a single underlying quantity of something or other, or an underlying transformable quantity, is the key to Odeberg's hypothesis that energy is prime matter. However, one further clarification is necessary before the hypothesis can be formulated. Since the quantity of energy remains the same in energy transformations, We might expect energy, regarded as an underlying something, to be a special kind of substance or thing or unit. We also easily use analogies, such as that of energy to currency, which might mislead us into thinking that in energy conservation, some thing or form stuff called energy is being conserved. However, Oderberg draws upon discussions by physicists to maintain that energy is not a thing or substance or unit. I'm going to pass over the somewhat lengthy discussion because it would take up a lot of time here. Uh, there's a quote number 10 from Richard Feynman on this point, but Oderberg's own discussion is is pretty extended, and I don't have any real disagreement with him on this. Uh, Quote 11, according to Oderberg, gravitational energy is not itself a substance, energy, possessed of a gravitational property. Rather, it is the potential energy possessed by a massive object in relation to another (coughs) massive object due to gravity. Nor do we need to know what gravity itself is, say a property of space-time as per general relativity, in order to understand gravitational energy in the way just stated, in quote. He then concludes, the same applies to all other kinds of energy. They belong to material substances. They are not themselves either many substances or identical to a single substance. On this point, I completely agree. Energy is not a thing or substance or unit. Odeberg, however, would emphasize that in this way, energy is like prime matter, which is also not a thing or substance. Energy, according to Oderberg, though not a thing or substance, is a single underlying transformable quantity that is conserved through changes from one form of energy to another. This is what Oderberg takes energy to mean in scientific use and upon which he then constructs the hypothesis that energy is prime matter. He then tests this hypothesis by a profile comparison. Granted, this conception of energy, the profile comparison can look rather strong, and the hypothesis may seem somewhat plausible. However, Oderberg's discussion of gravitational energy raises a problem that should make us hesitant to hypothesize that energy is prime matter. And this is quote 12. Oderberg maintains that if prime matter is energy, then all kinds of energy, potential included, are cases of pure potentiality actualized in objects and systems, end quote. This claim by Modus Tolens implies that the hypothesis is actually false since all the different kinds of energy are accidents. There are two broad classes among the kinds of energy, kinetic energy and potential energy. Kinetic energy is the energy of motion, and potential energy is the energy of position. Mass energy might be treated as a third class. Thus, all forms of energy depend either on motion, or on position, or on mass. However, motion, position, and mass do not exist on their own, but depend upon a body or a system that is moving, is in a position, or has mass. Therefore, energy is a dependent or secondary reality, and thus it is an accident and not a fundamental principle of a substance, such as prime matter. Identifying energy with prime matter is a category mistake. Since since the forms of energy, such as gravitational energy or chemical energy, are accidents, then they are in a substance or subject and do not make a substance be absolutely, but only make it be in a certain way. They do not actuate prime matter to make something be, but instead presuppose a substance or a system that they further actuate. Substantial... Not accidental forms actuate prime matter and compose substances. On Oderberg's hypothesis, the form of energy would not be correlative to the underlying energy understood as prime matter, for the forms of energy are not substantial forms, which are the proper correlate of prime matter. The same point might be made in another way. The relevant change through which prime matter persists is a substantial change, But many changes in energy are not substantial changes, such as the change in the gravitational energy of an apple falling from a tree. The apple and the earth persist through the fall, and at this level of explanation, there is no need to invoke prime matter as the conserved energy. Of course, some energy transformations do involve substantial changes. Oderberg quotes Heisenberg, who called attention to such changes, especially those pertaining to elementary particles, and famously claim that energy is prime matter. This is quote 13. The experiments have shown the complete mutability of matter. All the elementary particles can be transmuted into other particles. All the elementary particles are made of the same substance, which we may call energy or universal matter. They are just different forms in which matter can appear. If we compare this situation with the Aristotelian concepts of matter and form, we can say that the matter of Aristotle, which is mere potencia, should be compared to our concept of energy, which gets into actuality by means of the form when the elementary particle is created, end quote. In this passage, Heisenberg maintains that matter, by which he means formed matter, is completely mutable and that all elementary particles can be transmuted into other particles. Electrons, photons, and quarks are good examples of such particles since they can be transformed into other particles but are not themselves composed of further particles. As far as we know, they are elementary. For example, an electron and its antimatter counterpart the positron are both particles that have mass. They can interact so that they are completely transformed into two gamma ray photons, particles that are massless but which have radiant energy. Similarly, quarks of one kind can be transferred into quarks of another kind. The transmutation of all such elementary particles and the complete mutability of matter do indeed strongly suggest a formless, merely passive potency and therefore prime matter. On this basis, we can definitely argue that prime matter is a fundamental explanatory principle for high energy physics. However, we have no good reason for the further step of hypothesizing that the prime matter of certain high energy particle interactions is energy or more generally, that energy is prime matter. Heisenberg also draws upon the notion of form, for the different elementary particles are generated, or to use Heisenberg's term, created, by means of the forms that actualize the universal matter or mere potential out of which the particles are made. Form is understood in a somewhat Aristotelian sense, which is plausible since form, for an Aristotelian, is the correlative principle of matter and is what actuates the potency of matter and makes a thing be. Such forms, however, would be substantial forms, given the assumption that elementary particles are substances. However, the forms that Heisenberg says actuate energy to create an elementary particle do not correspond to known forms of energy. And Heisenberg does not say what kinds of energy such forms would be. Would they be electron forms, positron forms, or photon forms of energy? Oderberg, at one point in his profile comparisons, writes, and this is quote 14, if, for instance, the prime matter, energy, is organized or informed as a cow, it again, speaking in a derived or metanomic sense, will have capacity both to act, walk and chew, and be acted on, reined on, and herded." Quote. On such a view, the proportionate form of energy would be a cow form, but there are no bovine forms of energy. No form of energy, as far as I know, currently known to physics, is a correlate proportioned to prime matter. As argued previously, the forms of energy are accidents. Electrons and positrons have mass energy, and gamma ray photons have radiant energy. The mass energy of electrons and positrons and the radiant energy of photons are accidents, not substantial forms. Consequently, the mass energy and radiant energy of these particles do not correspond to the prime matter of these particles, and therefore energy is not prime matter. Nevertheless, someone considering the hypothesis that energy is prime matter might once again point out that some energy transformations in particle physics are substantial changes and might then say, as Oderberg himself does, that, quote, this is quote 15, still, as long as some transformations can occur at the elementary level, we know that energy functions as the underlying substratum, quote. However, In response, we should note the relevance of the Aristotelian principle that alteration is the way to substantial change. The Aristotelian principle applies to those changes in energy that do arguably involve elementary substantial changes, such as the change of an electron-positron pair into gamma ray photons or the generation of new particles in accelerator experiments. Alteration is a kind of change that is distinct from generation and corruption, which are substantial changes. Generation is the coming to be of an individual being that exists in and of itself. Corruption is the passing away of such an individual being. In such changes, the underlying prime matter loses the substantial form that makes the substance be what it is and acquires a new substantial form by which a new substance exists. Alteration is a qualitative change, an accidental change that presupposes an, accident, a presupposes an actual substance of which it is the quality. A substantial form requires a proper disposition or range of dispositions in its matter, a disposition without which it cannot exist. Put it in another way, a natural thing can only exist if its matter is disposed in a certain way or within a certain range. To use the old Aristotelian four element theory, chemistry as an example, the element fire has a certain range of heat and dryness within which it can exist. Outside that range, fire cannot come to be or remain in being. Consequently, alteration is the way to generation corruption inasmuch as as alteration changes the disposition of a substance's matter. Thus, when enough water, which is cold and wet, acts upon fire, which is hot and dry, the fire is altered by the water's qualities so that the fire's matter becomes cold and wet. Eventually, the fire is qualitatively altered so that it is too cold and wet to continue existing as fire. Its matter no longer has the proper disposition. The corruption of fire is also the generation of water or perhaps air from the potency of matter that now has the qualitative disposition proper to water or air. To avoid the ancient chemistry, we might think of the paper that spontaneously combusts when it gets too hot or of those people who die during heat waves or severe cold spells. Alteration both brings on and takes away the proper dispositions of things. As bringing them on, alteration is the way to generation. As taking them away, it is the way to corruption. A change in the form of energy is an alteration. And though such an alteration can be the way to a substantial change, it is not itself a substantial change but an accidental one. Therefore, it is a mistake to identify the energy transformations in fundamental particle interactions with the prime matter that explains the substantial changes that such particles undergo. Oderberg thus, has no basis for claiming that as long as some transformations can occur at the elementary level, we know that energy functions as the underlying substratum. We know that there is an underlying substratum for elementary particle transformations. But the scientific use of the term energy in accidental contexts implies that we have no good reason for hypothesizing that energy is this underlying substratum. However, the most serious difficulty with Oderberg's hypothesis (coughs) is not that the forms of energy are accidents and therefore do not imply a proportionate relation to prime matter. The more serious problem is that in regarding energy as an underlying transformable quantity, he has mistaken an abstraction for a real fundamental physical principle. This requires some explanation. We speak of animal forms, mineral forms, geometrical forms, life forms, and forms of matter. By such terminology, we tend to mean the different kinds of animals, minerals, geometrical shapes, living things, and material things. Similarly, the expression forms of energy tends to mean the different kinds of energy. Just as the expressions animal, mineral, geometrical, life, and matter in the modern sense do not mean something underlying and transformable that can gain and lose forms, so too, neither does the term energy mean some underlying and transformable quantity that can gain and lose those forms. Although living things of one kind can evolve into living things of another kind, life is not an underlying transformable principle that can gain or lose different forms of life. So too, the term energy, like the terms animal, mineral, geometrical, life, and matter, is an abstraction based on what is common to all the different forms of energy. We speak of the different forms of energy, such as kinetic energy, gravitational energy, heat energy, elastic energy, electromagnetic energy, chemical energy, radiant energy, nuclear energy, mass energy, and most recently, dark energy all have something in common by which we can justifiably say that they are energy. And we signify this commonality using the term energy abstractly in a way that is analogous to how we use the abstract term animal to mean what is common to many kinds of animals or shape to mean what is common to many different kinds of shapes. Energy and the law of the conservation of energy are abstract in the sense that they can signify a commonality that leaves out many specific and individual features without rejecting them. Energy, considered as an abstraction, does not exist as an underlying principle of natural things any more than the abstractions animal and shape exist as underlying principles of natural things. The commonality itself does not exist as such, except in a mind. Thus, we should no more be surprised that pure energy does not exist in nature all by itself, separately from the forms of energy, than we are that pure animal does not exist in nature separately from the different animal forms. Consequently, the law of the conservation of energy does not imply that energy is an underlying potency. Instead, it means that some quantifiable commonality remains constant throughout all changes in energy, even though what remains constant is not a thing, a mechanism, a unit like charge, or an underlying principle. Among physicists, Feynman, perhaps more strongly than most, emphasized the abstract character of energy and the law of conservation of energy. This is quote 16. Of all the conservation laws, that dealing with energy is the most difficult and abstract, and yet the most useful. It is abstract, purely mathematical, that there is a number such that whenever you calculate it, it does not change. I cannot interpret it any better than that. This energy has all kinds of forms. If we were to regard energy as signifying an underlying transformable principle such as prime matter then we would leave out much that the different forms of energy have in common and we would have no name for the commonality which is implausible indeed energy regarded as prime matter would exclude most of what the forms of energy have in common as forms if we take the case of gravitational energy transformed into electromagnetic energy then much of what the gravitational form and the electromagnetic form of energy have in common would be excluded from what is conserved. That does not seem to be what we mean by energy and energy conservation. We can treat this commonality mathematically and express it in formulas for each of the different forms of energy, formulas that can be added, subtracted, and set equal to each other. These formulas are treating something common to all the forms of energy as such, and it would be implausible to regard the conserved energy as, the underlying, as an underlying transformable quantity distinct from the forms of energy. Indeed, we can extend the term energy to new phenomena because the new phenomena have a quantity of this basic commonality. We may put this in another way. Heisenberg and Oderberg have perhaps confused the logical distinction between genus, species, and difference with the real distinction between a thing's composite principles such as matter and form. Man is composed of matter and soul as two constituent principles that make up a third reality. But in Man is a Rational Animal, rational and animal designate the difference in genus and are not constituent parts that make up a third reality. We do, however, say that the genus, in a way, is taken from matter, and that the specific difference, in a way, is taken from form. But the genus is not matter, and the difference is not form. The genus signifies indeterminately everything in the species, and not the matter alone, the difference designates the whole and not the form. The form alone. End quote. Heisenberg and Oder Heisenberg and Oderberg may have been misled by this similarity into regarding the relationship of forms of energy to energy as an instance of the relationship of form to matter, whereas the relationship of forms of energy to energy is more like the relationship of species to genus. I say, more like, because the relationships among the different forms of energy are complex and are not always clearly that of genus, species, and difference. The example is also not perfect because it concerns substances, man and animals, whereas the forms of energy are accidents like shapes. Nevertheless, the point is clear enough. Saying that energy is an abstraction may sound odd, because we think of it as real. We talk about a meal or an energy drink as having so many calories. We measure the electricity we use in kilowatt hours and pay for it accordingly. We speak of a lightning bolt as having a lot of energy. Here we can argue by analogy with the abstract notion animal to show that we can speak of energy and the forms of energy not only abstractly but also in very specific, particular, concrete, and physical ways. The term animal is not only a generic abstraction because we can also speak of this kind of animal and of this particular animal. We can talk about animal in the abstract and we can also talk about the kind of animal we call a dog and we can talk about this particular animal, my dog Yuki. Similarly, the term energy can be used abstractly, but can also be used to signify a specific form of energy, or the energy of a particular thing, such as the chemical energy of a stick of dynamite. Thus, we use the term energy in very abstract ways, especially in stating the law of conservation of energy, and we also use the term energy in very specific, particular, concrete, and physical ways. Consequently, the scientific uses of the term energy in abstract as well as in particular and concrete ways indicates that we have no good reason for hypothesizing that energy is an underlying substratum. Someone might reasonably ask what this commonality is that the abstract term energy signifies. Our best initial grasp is helpfully expressed by the physicist AP French, writing for the MIT introductory physics series of textbooks. This is quote 18. Of all the physical concepts, that of energy is perhaps the most far reaching. Everyone, whether a scientist or not, has an awareness of energy and what it means. Energy is what we have to pay for in order to get things done. The word itself may remain in the background, but we recognize that each gallon of gasoline each BTU of heating gas, each kilowatt hour of electricity, each car battery, each calorie of food value, represents in one way or another the wherewithal for doing what we call work. We do not think in terms of paying for force or acceleration or momentum. Energy is the universal currency that exists in apparently countless denominations and physical processes represent a conversion from one denomination to another. Unquote. French's description of energy as the wherewithal for doing work is simply the traditional definition of energy as the capacity for work, though French goes on to say that this is not a definition of energy, for energy is too fundamental to be defined. Although Oderberg regards the term capacity as supporting the conception of energy as an underlying transformable quantity, Closer examination does not bear this out. A capacity can be active or passive. Kinetic energy, the energy something has in virtue of its velocity, would be an active capacity. The kinetic energy of a projectile moving through a vacuum is an actuality, even though the projectile is not doing any work in virtue of it. However, once the projectile strikes a target, it does do work on the target in virtue of its kinetic energy. Potential energy presents a difficulty. Oderberg, following a usage common among physicists, regards potential energy as stored energy, which implies that potential energy, such as the gravitational potential energy of a suspended weight, is an actuality. Thus, what's common to kinetic and potential energy is an actuality, which is at odds with Oderberg's conception of energy as an underlying transformable quantity. However, potential energy does not do any work work unless it becomes kinetic energy. The suspended weight must fall to do work, which suggests that potential energy is a passive capacity or a passive potency, a capacity open to becoming something else. This might be taken to support ohr view, but what it suggests is that the commonality we call energy is complex and can include both an actuality and a passive potency to that actuality, though the act and potency involved are accidents, and thus the relevant potency would not be that of prime matter. Oderberg views the notion of energy as the capacity for work through the lens of energy conceived as something underlying the forms of energy. This is quote 19. Whether energy is active or passive then depends on its role or function in a given system. Considered in itself, it is the capacity for work. If prime matter is energy, the Aristotelian will translate the capacity for work into the pure potentiality to be informed in various ways. Depending on how the energy, prime matter, is organized, it will enable work to be done to an object or by an object or system," In this passage, Oderberg makes both mistakes discussed in this paper. He seems to think of the forms of energy in given systems as distinct from energy consist- considered in itself, which is the capacity for work. However, the capacity for work as a description of energy is not an underlying principle, but an abstract commonality of the different forms of energy and an Aristotelian has no reason to adopt a hypothesis that translates an abstract commonality into a fundamental hylomorphic principle. In addition, as argued earlier, the different forms of energy are accidents, and thus they cannot inform the pure potentiality that is prime matter. Consequently, the capacity for work is not the pure potentiality to be informed in various ways, and the hypothesis that energy is prime matter is implausible. Before concluding, I want to address briefly a question my argument raises. If prime matter is not energy, what is it that is conserved through a change governed by the law of conservation of energy? The law of conservation of energy may be understood as a more specific and determinate application of the general principle that the corruption of this is the generation of something else and vice versa. To this, we might add the explanation offered by Julius Mayer, the co-discoverer of the law of conservation of energy. This is quote 20. We complete our thesis, which necessarily follows from the fundamental principle, causa equat effectum, and which stands in complete accord with all natural phenomena, end quote. Combining the proportionality principle of cause and effect and the principle that the corruption of this is the generation of something else, the basic idea is that energy interactions show a distinction between mover and moved and the mover and moved are so proportioned that the effect in the moved equals the action of the mover. When the force of gravity draws an apple to the ground, the kinetic energy that the apple gains in its fall equals the amount of gravitational energy of position that it loses. Throughout the interaction, there are proportionate causes and quantities of what comes to be and passes away. We should distinguish between conserved and persist, so that what is conserved in in energy conservation is not something that persists through a change. Though the same quantity of energy is present throughout a physical process, that quantity is not the quantity of a thing or principle persisting throughout the process. For example, if at the beginning of a process a system has 100 joules of energy, then assuming the system is closed, it must have 100 joules of energy throughout and at the end of the process. However, the 100 joules at the beginning need not be the same hundred joules that are present at the end. The conservation of energy, as it were, conserves the overall activity of a body or system so that what is conserved is the quantity of act or activity, but the identical act need not persist through the change. The energy of the form and act corrupted equals the energy of the form and act adduced but the energy is not an underlying principle, such as prime matter, that persists throughout the energy transformation. The universe, as it were, has a certain amount of activity, and as far as we know, that amount of activity does not, according to nature, increase or decrease, though it is slowly dissipated. In conclusion, Oderberg considers the hypothesis that prime matter is energy, a hypothesis that he tests by profile comparison. But the hypothesis involves a mistaken interpretation of of energy. The profile comparison is based on this mistake, and so the approach is problematic from the start. The hypothesis that prime matter is energy seems plausible or strong based on this initial mistake, and so we should not grant the hypothesis, though it may be interesting and fruitful to explore it. Thank you. If you enjoyed this talk and would like to hear more, please don't forget to like and subscribe to Talking Thomism. Thanks for listening. Talking Thomism is a production of the Center for Thomistic Studies at the University of St. Thomas, Houston. The Center for Thomistic Studies is the only graduate program in the United States uniquely dedicated to the thought of St. Thomas Aquinas. To find out more, please visit us at www.stthom.edu. cts